the Theology in Practice podcast, a podcast that takes theology and applies it to the everyday life. I'm your host, Anthony Kidd, and I want to thank you for joining me in this week's discussion. Welcome back. As we are continuing our study in the book of John, we are in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. The big idea is that this section is a continuation of the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. Verses 16 through 18 explain why Jesus was sent for the redemption of the world. Therefore, our only hope is to look to Jesus like Israel looked to the bronze serpent in the wilderness from Numbers 21. In verses 19 through 21, the judgment is explained and shows how the darkness of man is naturally drawn to hide from the light that Jesus brought into the world. John 3.16 is possibly the most well-known Bible verse in all of the world today. Most any person who has ever heard of the Bible can quote John 3.16. This familiarity has caused a certain level of removal from its context. It's important to remember that 3.16 is following the warning of Jesus about Israel in the wilderness having to look up to the bronze serpent for life and saying that he would also share in the same type of lifting up. This next section is more than likely just John's editorial comments on the previous conversation rather than the words of Jesus. There are some grammatical reasons for believing this, but also the wording of the section sounds more like a commentary as opposed to an actual quote of Jesus. We will run into this later in chapter 3. So let's break this section down verse by verse. Verse 16, we see God's love by exclusion. In verses 14 and 15, we are shown that the mission of God's Son is to be lifted up so that He might bring about the salvation of the world. The reason for this mission is stated at the beginning of verse 16 when it says, God so loved the world. In another translation, it reads, God loved the world in this way. He loved the world that he had created, so to bring redemption to it, he gave his only son. The word gave here should remind us that even though salvation is free, it was not cheap. Throughout history, God has provided time and time again for his people, and time and time again they have rejected his provision for them. Instead, we arrogantly think that we can provide for ourselves. Some have even gone as far as to say that God has not done enough to provide for the world. Commentator R.C. Sproul has an excellent paragraph about this, and that is worth quoting at length. R.C. Sproul says, Suppose there actually is a God in heaven, and suppose that this God created the world and everything in it. Suppose that in the process of making a myriad of birds, fish, and animals, he formed human beings in his image and he gave them the most exalted position in all of creation. Suppose he said, you will be holy even as I am holy. And he gave them the one command to obey. But 15 minutes after he made them, these human beings revolted against him by doing the very thing that he commanded them not to do. Suppose God then said, I'm going to provide a way for you to escape my judgment. And he called Abraham out of paganism and brought him to himself. And he said, I am going to make you the father of a great nation. Suppose that he blessed all the descendants of Abraham and expanded them into a whole nation. And he said, through this nation, I am going to bless the whole world. But this nation repeatedly turned against him. Suppose God sent prophets to these people to tell them to come back to him, just as an unfaithful spouse returns to his or her partner. But the people killed the prophets. 
Suppose God finally said, I love you so much, even though you are a stiff-necked people, that I'm going to send my eternal, only begotten Son to you. But these people rose up against his Son and crucified him. Suppose that God loved the people enough that in all of this, while they were at the very act of killing his son, he transferred the sins of his people to his son and said, if you'll put your trust in him, if you'll confess your sins and believe in him, if you'll turn your gaze upon Jesus, you will not experience death. I'm going to give you eternal life with no pain, no tears, no evil, and no darkness. If God were to do all of that, would you have the insolence to say to him, God, you haven't done enough for this world that hates you? God gave the ultimate gift in the person of Jesus Christ. We must believe in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. To believe means to have complete confidence in the object of your belief. To not believe means that you have placed confidence in something else. This is why verse 18 will show that in unbelief we are already condemned. Verse 17, we see the mission. If we are given the reason for the mission in verse 16, then verse 17 gives us the mission of Jesus. Jesus is not the one condemning the world. We have already condemned ourselves through sin that brought death into the world in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus is the one who comes as redemption and final sacrifice for our sin. No matter what we do, there is nothing that will earn salvation. Remember the conversation with Nicodemus. He was so focused on the things that he had control over that he completely missed the point of Jesus telling him that he needed to be born again. Nothing about your race, sociopolitical status, religious zeal, genealogy, or personal goodness will ever merit salvation. Salvation is a gift from God through belief in the person of Jesus Christ. John contrasts belief and unbelief with the contrasting of perishing and eternal life. Anyone who would believe in Jesus will have eternal life. Those who do not believe will perish. Perish here does not mean to disappear, but rather is in contrast to eternal life, refers to eternal torment. Jesus did not come into a neutral world to condemn some and save others. Rather, Jesus came into a condemned world to save those that the Father would give him, from John 6.44. Now we come to verse 18, and we see the condemnation of the world. One important point about this passage is to point out the exclusivity of the gospel. John very clearly defines that belief in the person of Jesus Christ is the road to eternal life. He made that clear in verse 16 and reiterates the point here at the start of verse 18. In verse 16, the combination of three Greek words, which literally mean all of those believing, translates to whoever or whosoever. Here in verse 18, John simply uses the relative pronoun who. So, because the context has already established the exclusivity from verse 16, it is safe for us to use the same word here in verse 18 when it says, whoever believes. Again, Jesus did not bring condemnation into the world, but simply shine the light into an already dark and condemned world. For the ones who believe, though, verse 18 says that that person is not condemned. This phrase is in the present tense and means that at the moment of belief, their condemnation is already removed. There's no waiting period or testing time with God, since we already know that He knows our very hearts from chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, He knows the genuineness of our belief. 
it's important to understand the connection between God's love and God's justice. Some people charge God with being unjust because he doesn't save everyone. The reality of the situation is that those of us who are not under condemnation are the ones who have received God's unjustice or non-justice. If God were just, then we would die at the moment of our first sin. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. If we really wanted true justice, then we would all be dead. Instead, what we constantly receive, and even those who curse God receive, is God's mercy and compassion. Mercy and compassion are unjust. We should rejoice because of God's unjustice. Verses 19 through 21 close out the section and tell us about the judgment. To close out this section, John is revealing our spiritual condition and showing us our need for new life. And he is pointing to the Rescuer, Redeemer, and Messiah, Jesus, for all the purposes of forcing us to evaluate whether new birth from above has occurred in our lives. In verse 19, we are told that people loved the darkness and their works were evil. Verse 20 indicates that those who love darkness exhibit this love by their outward actions. Additionally, they are inwardly opposed to the light of Jesus. They hate the light, they fear exposure, and they do not want to be corrected. John then contrasts the spiritual condition of those who walk in darkness with those who walk in the light. Those who are in Christ do what is true. Another way of understanding this is that they act honorably or they walk according to the truth. Their inward attraction to the light is displayed outwardly as they live in line with the truth. They openly and freely and gladly come to the light with nothing to hide, not merely to boast in their works, but because they are motivated with a desire to align their actions to God in order to please God. I want to thank you for joining me for Theology and Practice. Our prayer is that God's Word would penetrate into your heart and continue you on your journey of sanctification as you seek to be more like Christ. 